We just come before you. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word together and that we can find out what you would like us to learn from this. We ask you to guide and lead us as we study in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 106. We're going to read the whole psalm here. Praise you the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that you bear unto your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the good of your chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. You have sinned, we have sinned with our fathers, and we have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not your wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of your mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power be, to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up, so that he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness. And as he saved Save them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeem them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies, and there was not one of them left. They then believed they the, his words, and they, they sang his song. They soon forgot his works, they waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their soul. They envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, and the earth opened and swallowed up. Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And the fire was kindled in their company, and the flame burned up the wicked. And they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed the glory and similitude of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen stood before them in the breach, and turned away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not his word, they murmured in their tents, and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them, to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves unto Baal Beor, and ate the sacrifice of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger in their inventions, and, their, and plague broke upon them. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed, and was counted for him as righteousness unto all generations forever. They angered him also in the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sake, because they provoked his spirit, so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but they mingled among the heathen and learned their works, and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they suffered, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works, and went a whoring in their own inventions. Therefore was the wrath of God the Lord kindled against his people insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. And he gave them into the land of the heathen, hand of the heathen, and they hated them, ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel, and they were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. When he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant, and repented according to the multitude of his mercies, he made them also to be pitied by of all those that carried them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to, get, to give thanks unto thy holy name, and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise you the Lord. Another one of these wonderful history songs. And when you read this and you hear this, if you can remember back to Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and, and Judges, you see this history flowing out. And we're going to kind of look through this in, in, as we go and just look and see what it is. Uh, last week we ended with, Our fathers understood not your wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of your mercies, but provoked him at the Red Sea, uh, at the sea, even the Red Sea. That was seven. 
Verse 8, nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake that he might make his mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up, so that he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. So we look at this, and it says, God saved them, not because they deserved it, but for his name's sake. How often does God do things for us that we do not deserve, but just so that he is lifted up? He does so many marvelous things for us, and it's, it's hard sometimes to look and say, God, you know, why have you blessed me in this way? That humility that we look at and say, God, don't deserve this, but look what you've done. And he keeps doing marvelous things. And this has been the testimony of, if you read any biographies of Christian leaders and Christian missionaries, it's the refrain that's always brought out. God, I don't deserve it, but look what you've done. You have grown me. You have developed me. You have taught me. You have given me great blessings. And it's all so that his name will be glorified. And it says that, he's, he's, that he may make his mighty power to be known for his name's sake and that he will be lifted up. Basically, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. God's saying the same thing. I'm going to do great things so that people will know that I am God. It says, he rebuked the Red Sea and it was dried up and led them through the depths as through the wilderness and he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of their enemy. Again, and this is something that's so amazing. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to have to walk through the Red Sea. Even if it is shallowest point, it's two or 300 feet deep. And it's probably there that they crossed. But can you imagine a wall of water 100 to 300 feet in height? on both sides of you. Uh, if you can imagine going through a canyon, you walk through a canyon and you picture walking through a canyon and picturing those walls being made out of water. I can see walking through the canyon, but not with water. Yeah. This is just, but this, and it, and it was dried. Again, if you've ever walked across a river, how muddy and, and slippery it is. And you know, if it's been there for a long time, you might even sink into it. And here, God moved the water and dried the land at the same time. And they walked across as through the wilderness. Yeah, this is quite a picture. I can't even imagine, you know, and I've watched the different shows where they've gone through the Red Sea and the waters been lifted up, but none of that is ever as deep, shows it as deep as it really had to have been. The closest thing we could picture is walking through a canyon with big walls on both sides, but instead of being made out of stone, they're made out of water. That would be kind of freaky. You know how much faith it would take just to be walking through this water place? Well, I would think it would be even today would be interesting oh, to walk yeah. through it you know, because there's water with no visible means of holding it up. It's not like you're seeing a sheet of plexiglass <laughs> keeping it in place. It's wet. <laughs> it's wet. I can imagine some kid going up and touching it just to see if it was really water. As an adult, I'm not sure I'd want to go touch it, but <laughs> I might be afraid of breaking the, breaking the tension on it and, and dropping the whole thing. But it says they were saved. Now, they really didn't have much option in the matter because Pharaoh was chasing after them, and it was like, you either stay and get killed by Pharaoh, or you take your chance walking through the and Red Sea. And, but we know the story of how God defeated the Egyptians. Pillar of fire moved to the back of them and blocked Pharaoh from coming through while they crossed the Red Sea. Especially that he made all those chariots. Then he took the chariot wheels off. Any smart person, if their wheels are all falling, I mean, if, had the wheels fall off of one chariot would be one thing. But to have the wheels fall off every chariot, there was a great fear of the, of the Pharaoh because they kept going because he told them to go. But you can know everybody on those chariots, you know, are saying, this God has done all these things in, in our land and now he's, now he's taken the wheels off of our chariots and we're dragging along, bouncing off the ground without wheels, 
we better just turn back because this is not going to turn out well. And it didn't turn out well. The entire army of Egypt was lost in this flood when the walls of water came crashing back down. And if you think about this, we're reading something that was sung in church. This history song would have been sung once in a while in church. I'm sure it's not one that they did every week. Uh, it's a long psalm and it's all history. But they sang songs that helped them remember their history. In verse 11, And the waters covered their enemies, and there was not one of them left. God killed the entire army of Egypt. And they sang about the victory. They sang about the victory and they danced and they celebrated God's deliverance over their enemy. And that's what this uh, verse 12 says. And they believed in the, then believed they his words and they sang his praise. And they were excited. They have no longer slaves. They, they were on as far away from them as you could get. And God was very smart in how he brought them out because the, re the direct road would have led from Goshen up along the Mediterranean into the Promised Land. Should have been about a two-week journey. And God takes them south, where they can't just cross over, then takes them across the, the Red Sea so that they cannot just turn back and go, go back to Egypt. If they had gone the two-week journey, they would have found all these strong nations that have to fight. They weren't ready to fight chances are they would have just turned back and gone back to Egypt. He made it so they couldn't go back. Because now to go back, you had to go north up the Red Sea, which would have been three or four days or more just to go up the, north, uh, up the Red Sea, come back around the corner, and nobody's going to want you there at this point. The entire army's been destroyed. The economy has been destroyed. They would not have let the Egyptian, uh, they would not have let the Israelite people back under any circumstances. They would have said, uh-uh, you stay away from here. You've, you've, been, you've been our destruction. You are staying away. But we see what God has done. Instead of taking them up the short way so they can go back and he prepares them, he takes them a long way around so there's no option of going back. And God has prepared that. How many times in our life does God make us go through things that gives us no option to return back. He closes doors. He slams doors in our face. He makes it so that we're no longer welcome if we tried to go back, and we can't go back in many cases. And this is true of us. When we become a Christian, if we try to reject our walk with God and go back to the world, we don't ever feel comfortable back in the world. And the world doesn't feel comfortable with us because we don't fit in anymore. We need to be able to stay with God and quit backsliding because when we backslide, we're, we're just not. We're not happy where we're at and they're not happy having us. Uh, one of the things when I walked away from the church, I, I remember talking about God all the time. And I think I remember, not that I talked about him more than I usually did, but I felt like such a hypocrite because I wasn't where I was supposed to be, but I was still talking about God. So I didn't fit in with them. I didn't fit in. I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And this happens all the time to us. This is what God's showing his people. He's making it so they can't go back. And if they do go back, if they do try to go back, they're going to not be welcome. And then verse 13 says, They soon forgot his works, and they waited not for his counsel. And we've talked about this. It's just a day or two after this mighty destruction of the people of the army of Egypt and they've sung all these songs that they're griping to Moses saying you brought us out here to kill us there's no water we're dying of thirst and it's just a couple of days <laughs> and and I know we do kind of think of this well how could they these mighty works but how many times do we do the same thing in our life we watch God do a big thing in our life and then just a couple of days later week month whatever it might be and we're going God uh how come you never do anything for us? You know, you, God, you've never done anything for me. And we forget. We forget so simp so, our, the simple things that he does for us so quickly, which is why I tell us over and over, we need to write down, mark down, think about 
the things that God has done so that when we get a couple days down the road and everything looks like it's going against us, we can go, okay, God, you did this, you did this, you did this. I can have faith that you're going to get me through this event. And this is going to happen, and this is rehearsing their history. And this uh, psalm really is teaching them, <laughs> remember what God has done. When, it, when you keep forgetting, remember. And that's the message for us. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Over and over, he's going to keep it. Remember. And this is what he's, what he's looking at. They had the water. Then after that, it says, he's going to another story in verse 14. But those stood exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them leanness, and he gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. He gave them what they thought they wanted. Have you ever been in a place where God gives you what you thought you wanted? You begged him for it. You, you pleaded with him for it. And he finally said, okay, fine, you can have it. And then you found out it wasn't what you wanted. It wasn't, did, didn't satisfy in any way, or way, shape, or form. And you had this leanness of your soul wasting. You got what you thought you wanted. But it wasn't God. We've got to keep in remembrance when we're new Christians, a lot of times we seek the blessings of God instead of God himself. As we mature, we should desire God himself, and then whatever blessing he gives us is, is like the gravy. But we want, what, we want God. We should want the gift giver, not the gifts. And this is something that we have to be able to look at. Too many times we seek after, God, give me this or give me that. And it could be something wonderful. God, I want, the, I want the gift of healing. I want the gift of this. God, I want physical blessings. And God is saying, okay, I can give that, but don't you want me? And too often we're not seeking him. We're seeking the status of whatever it is that we're seeking. And the, the Jews did this over and over, and they're wandering in the wilderness. God, we need or we want, instead of seeking after him. And if we have God and we desire him, we'll get everything else. But the, the one we want is him. And this is where we must be. I want the giver of the gifts more than the gifts. Because if I have the giver, I've got all the gifts. But I have to focus on him. And I'm not saying this that we go, okay, God, I want lots of gifts. I'm going to go after you. No, we have to truly want him. And then whatever we get is the blessing, it's the gravy, it's, it's the fun part. Being a pastor, it can be a very hard job, but the fun part of being a pastor is to preach, as far as I'm concerned. Now, there are a handful of pastors that they think that the, it's the other way around, but I love, I love the fact that I get to preach. It's the, it's the gravy. It's the fun part of the job. And too many times we start seeking after the wrong things, and we have to seek after the giver, not the gifts. And once we, have, once we seek after him, he gives us all the rest. But it's because he wants us. He wants us to be totally given to him. Verse 16 starts another story. And they envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron, his, the saint of the Lord. And the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And fire kin, was kindled in their company, and the flame burned up the wicked. So this is that story of the Korite rebellion. These are the first name, the tribal names of, of these people. And remember that they went up and said to Moses, who do you think you are to rule over us? We're, we're all equal to you, Moses. We're all, we're all children of the God. We're of God. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. Who are you to be our ruler? And God said, separate yourselves from them. And if you remember, it says that the earth opened up and, and just swallowed their entire family and closed back up. And at that same moment, a roaring fire started in the camp and of judgment and killed, if I recall right, 10 or 20,000 people in the camp. And this was something that was going on, that people were destroyed because of this challenge to God's chosen authority. Challenging God's authority is not something you want to get in the habit of doing. And this is why I say if you have a problem with, you're in a church and you have a problem with the leadership, you get out of that church. You don't sit there and criticize that leader. 
And something I've learned many times over the years, I've watched people get judged because they go against God's authority. Right, wrong, or indifferent, it's God's authority, the person God puts in there needs to be prayed for and lifted up. Our country has that issue right now. Right now we seem to have a president who's going to be somewhat godly. Seems to. We'll find out as he develops. We came out of a president who was very ungodly in all that he did, but we still needed to be praying for him and, and lifting him up because God put him in place. We will see what we have in our current president, but we still want to lift him up and pray for him because there's things going on in our government that are really bad. And we need to be lifting up prayer and say, God, strengthen this individual and help them be, follow you. But we need to always lift up that authority. And then there was a fire in, the, in that camp and killed many. Verse 19, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed the glory, their glory in, into the similitude of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God and their Savior, which and which he had done the great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and terrible things by the Red Sea. Okay, remember, Horeb is another name for Sinai. All right? And we, we bring this up. I'm trying to help people remember these different names that are for things. Horeb and Sinai are equivalent. The whole peninsula of Sinai? No, the mountain, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And this is just another name for... For it. When they give you Horeb, it's an, it means Mount Sinai. Uh, just as when we talk about the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah or Mount Calvary or the Jerusalem Mount, they're all the same, <laughs> same mountain. And we just need to be able to remember these things because sometimes you read these things and you go, well, what, what, what's he re referring to? And this one is kind of easy because it talks about the golden calf. So but they, make the, they made the golden calf and worship the molten image. And this, this is where Moses goes up on the mountain. He spends 40 days. And remember what they're saying down below when they go to Aaron. They go, Aaron, we don't know what happened to this fellow Moses that took us. He's been gone for 40 days. Make us a God that we can worship. And he says, fine, give me your gold. And he made him a golden calf. And then he gave the all-time worst excuse when Moses came back down and I've always thought this was so wonder such an excuse you know Moses comes down and he goes what did you do and he goes well I put the gold in the fire and this came out <laughs> I just put the gold in the fire and this this ox this this golden calf came out of the fire uh, I don't think Moses believed him <laughs> uh, very very lame excuse but he wanted to make it sound like this was a miracle you know, we just threw the gold in the fire and out popped this uh, golden calf. You know, it's, um, and then you look at verse 20. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eats grass. This is a reference to the verse that's brought several times by the prophets. We become like what we worship. All right? And this is a reference to that type of mentality. They worshiped a golden calf, so they were changing their glory, the glory that they were built in, that we were created in the image of God, to what they were worshiping, a cow. But we see over and over, this is what God does. When we worship God, we become more like him because he changes us. When somebody worships at the altar of work, they will become that greedy, hard-driving person that it takes to be when you worship work. If they're worshiping at the idol of sex, they will become that type of person with the lascivious nature and the lustful nature that they will have because of what they are worshiping. We become like what we worship. And this is said over and over in the scriptures. And here the psalmist is saying the same thing. You started worshiping a calf and you changed your glory to be like an like a ox. Bullish, boorish. And all the sex that was going on at the, at the camp at that time and their orgy that they were having. And all of the stuff that went with that. And he says you, begave, you transferred your glory to something else. And this is part of what the problem is. If we do not spend time with other Christians thinking about Christ, thinking about God, 
and living up to his standards, we will be like the world in our thought processes. And that in influences kids. And this is why it's so important that we keep up the righteousness that we're supposed to have, but it's God who gives, it, gives us the ability to do that. Verse 21, and they forgot their God, their Savior, which he, and the things which he had done in Egypt. So we've already seen this statement twice, and we know that that's what happened. They crossed the, they, they, they left Egypt and got stuck by the Red Sea, and they, and they forgot all that God had done with the plagues. They got on the other side of the Red Sea. They started praising God. A couple days later, they were griping about him and forgot him. They gave him water. They forgot about him. They asked for food because they'd forgotten about him. They went to Sinai and forgot about him. This is a thing that keeps going on over and over and over again. They forgot all that he had done in Egypt and the wondrous works that he had done in the land of Ham and the terrible things by the Red Sea. And the land of Ham, we should be able to remember because we had the Sunday morning message a couple weeks ago on that. Ham's descendants settled primarily in Africa and various places of the of the uh, Middle East. But he said he did wondrous works in the land of Ham and terrible things by the Red Sea. Terribly and destroyed hundreds and thousands of army, army and horses by the sea coming in upon them. Destroyed the army of Egypt. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Okay, this is talking about the story in Exodus 32 where God tells Moses, I'm sick and tired of these people. I'm going to destroy them all and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses stood up and said, no, Lord, you can't do that because your name will be discredited if you do that. People will say that you brought them out of Egypt but could not deliver them into the promised land. Do not destroy your people. This is quite a statement from, from uh, Moses because Moses has already been upset with the people several times and basically saying, I'm tired of them, God. <laughs> Why did you give me these people? And we've described when we were doing on Wednesday night this whole section on, on Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, how God and, and Moses seem to have this little game going on God keeps going to Moses, well, they're your people. And Moses goes, oh, uh, they're not my people, they're your people. And God goes, nope, they're your people. And you can picture this game, you know, Moses being the pastor's heart that he has for these three and a half million people. He loves them in spite of all of their, their pain in the neck. And he gets frustrated with them every once in a while, but he still loves them. They're his people. He's leading them. And this is something that is hard on leaders because you love your people and you can get frustrated with them as you see them make dumb, dumb mistakes and, and not applying God's word. And you go, God, how, how long, how hard can this be? And then there's other times when you're saying, God, thank you, they're, they're doing so good. And Moses was in that same place. And this was one of those times when God tested him. Moses, I'm just going to destroy all these people. And I'm going to start all over. I started over with Abraham and, you, and they'll now be the descendants of Moses. <laughs> and he goes, no, God, you can't do that. You can't do that, God. You, it's not... Not which it would not be good for your name's sake, and this is he, appro he approached God and said, "Your name, the reputation of your name, is going to suffer, God, if you do that." The people will go, "Well, your God was strong enough to deliver you, but not strong enough to bring you into the land." And this is after this event happened. You know, after Moses has been <laughs> frustrated with his people, and that yet he stood in the gap for his people. No. And he even goes, God, destroy me if, you would be, if it would deliver them. Same thing Paul is going to say later on. God, if, it, if you could deliver all my fellow Jews, I would go to hell if you would just take the, all of them to, with you. That's the heart of a pastor. That's the heart of somebody who loves their people so much. God, if every one of my people would be able to go, I would be willing to suffer for eternity. That's a deep heart. And I don't know that I've gotten there yet. I care about the people in this church. I don't know that I'm to that point where I'm saying, God, if you were to bring all of them to heaven, I would be willing to suffer. I'm not there. <laughs> Moses, and, Moses and Paul were, and I'm not going to be in their company, I don't think. But who knows where God can take me? Because they weren't either in that company when they first started. But then he goes, verse... Uh, 
Let's see, where was I? Verse 24. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, they believed not his word, but they murmured in their tents and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. This is when they got to the promised land. They were out, they were out of Egypt for about a, about a year, year and a half. Remember, they spent a year in Sinai. Then they went to the promised land. They sent in the spies. And the spies came back, and their, and their, their, their uh, testimony was really good. Yes, this land is wonderful. Look at, look at these, these grapes. We're holding one cluster of grapes on a stick between two people. Look at these melons. They're monsters. But there's a problem. Goes, there's giants in the land, and we, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. This is something we brought out in before when we were studying. Whenever you take and say, this is how somebody else sees you, you've got a problem. Because number one, you don't know how they see you. We're going to find out that the people saw them and were afraid of them because of what God had done to Egypt. They could have gone in straight in and defeated all of, all of the uh, Palestinian places because they were afraid of Israel. Well, not so much Israel, but God. <laughs> they were afraid of God. And yet the testimony of the spies were, we look like grasshoppers. They could just step on us and, we know, and they know it. And that's not the way they saw them, which is why when they come back in and Rahab gives them the testimony that, you know, we've heard of what your God did. We, we are terrified <laughs> of you and your God. And it was true even before. They were terrified because God had wiped out the strongest nation in the world at that time. And God had destroyed them. And now... Israel standing at their doorstep. And if they had just had enough faith to believe God, they would have been able to be conquerors and victorious. How many times do we do the same thing? We're standing at the threshold of a battle that God has given us victory. The enemy is afraid. And we look by sight and say, there's just no way I can get, get through this. The song we sang this morning, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We need to keep that in mind because there is often times that we are afraid to enter into the battle that God has put us in because we don't truly believe that God is greater than we are or greater than anything that we're facing. Let's put it that way. And we need to keep that in mind. God is oftentimes going to challenge us. Here's your battle. Here's a big challenge. I've seen it over and over. You ask somebody to, to do something in the church. Oh, no, I can't, I can't teach the adults. I can't teach the kids. I can't do this. I can't do that. And God's saying, step out. Step out in faith. Do something. I can't witness out on the street, God. That would, I'd be scared to death. Step out. God, I can't share the gospel with my relatives. They might think I'm crazy. Step out. Whatever it is that we're having trouble with, we need to step out. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan and it split, I would have hated to have been the Levite carrying the, carrying the Ark of the Covenant because they had to step into a flood stage river on the promise that it was going to turn into dry land. And you don't step into a flood stage river. It's fast-moving currents will take you down the stream in a heartbeat. And it said as soon as their sole of their foot of the lead guy touched the water, the water stopped and, and built up down the stream. How would you have liked to have to have been that lead, lead Levite carrying that thing? <laughs> the rest of them weren't too bad. It's like, okay, we get to walk on dry land. But that first guy who had to put his foot in that water, or at the water, He did. That's how fast it dried up. But you had to have enough faith to be the one that did it. Two. Well, two, one on each side, yeah. So one of the two of them actually was the first one to touch it, and the water dried up. So you go first. No, you go first. <laughs> but we think about this. Many times God asks us to do something that without faith we look at and say, 
there is no way that this can happen. And yet when we step forward, God clears the path in a miraculous way so often. And it's wonderful to watch God at work to do the, do the miraculous when we just have the faith to step out. Part of that, though, is getting to know him, getting to know his voice and saying, this is what God wants me to do. And being absolutely sure that I am doing what God wants. I've only had that a handful of times in my life to know that, I'm, to know that I know that I'm doing what God wants me to do. And, but it's wonderful in those times to step forward and say, okay, God, we're going to watch how you, we're going we're to go through all the, the barriers and the blockades, and God, you're going to make it happen because you said it's going to happen. And it's fun to watch when those things happen. It's fun to be there and see all the, all the problems. You know, Divide, divide away the, the Red Sea parts, <laughs> whatever, those, whatever that Red Sea is at the time. And we, we see that happening. So they, and then it says, verse 20, But they murmured in their tents and hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. The sad thing is, how many times, have, verse 25, how many times are we in our homes murmuring about what God's asked us to do? And that's a bad place to be. When you're starting to complain, if you're going to complain, make sure it's to God. But even then, you, if you know what he wants you to do, don't be complaining to him. Just step out and do it. But really bad is when we start murmuring against what God's got calling us to do. I've seen this in different churches where a pastor will throw out a vision to the church and people will start going, well, who is he to be throwing out this heart of vision? We can't do that. And they start talking amongst themselves and, and totally going against what has been given out. And some of the stories from, from Chuck Smith as he's building the very first church, you know, and the deacons are coming to him and saying, well, we can't have all these uh, dirty, dirty uh, bums and everything in here. You know, they'll mess up the carpet. So what was his answer? Well, then we'll take the carpet up. You know, I don't think they ever did, but his answer was, if the carpet is that important that you want to protect it, we'll drag it out and... Uh, and let these guys in their bare feet walk on the carpet. <laughs> but, you know, this, I throw that story up because I've heard it just recently, but that's not an uncommon story when, when God is telling some, a church to move forward and the pastor is preaching out, a, there's always those who come up and say, well, we can't do it because. We can't do this because. And they'll throw out all the obstacles because they don't have enough faith to see that God will s split the Red Sea and you'll walk through the obstacles. And it's very important. In Sunday school this morning, we were talking about how tradition gets taught over time and becomes more, as important or more important than what the Bible says. And we see this over and over again. We need to keep what God says and act on what he is telling us. And take those steps. Sometimes they're bold steps. Sometimes they're scary steps. But we take the steps that he leads us to follow. Because... He is the one that can do great and marvelous things. And when we just step out, we'll see them. The children of Israel could have stayed on the edge of the Red Sea forever if, if they hadn't dared to go through the Red Sea. They could have stayed forever dying of thirst at the bitter waters of Mira if they hadn't had the faith to be going forward. They could have stayed on the opposite side of the Jordan forever if they hadn't dared to take that first step into, this, into the flood waters and watch them dry up. All through the history of the Bible, we see people that dared to take a first step. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego dared to take the first step to be obedient to God and not eat the foods that were not allowed to them. And God blessed them. Even though it makes no sense that he blessed them to eat less food, and, and end up getting fatter and, and better looking than the rest of the guys. You know, it doesn't happen when you eat vegetables and water to get, get in better shape than, than the people that are eating lots of food. And we see that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to, to worship the idol in spite of the fact that they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. They took a daring step and said, God, we're going to honor you and we're going to, we're going to look to you, God, are you going to defend us because we're putting our full faith in you? Worst case is, God, we'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs> and isn't that what they told Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar said, and what God, can, what God will deliver you from my hand? 
and they're, and they're, whether our God can deliver us, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will not bow down to the idol. Basically, they were saying, well, we may see God in just a few minutes, and if not, we're going to be stuck here with you. <laughs> that is a bold faith. And we see this over and over again through the scriptures and through history. God, I'm going to trust you. I may die in this. I may be seeing you in a few minutes, God, but I'm not going to surrender. How do you get that faith? Number one, you have to believe that if you die, you get to spend time with God. This makes you pretty bold. When you absolutely, truly believe that if you die, you go stand before God, it makes you pretty bold because you don't have anything to lose. <laughs> the worst that you're going to do what, is maybe live through it and have to continue in this life. The best thing is you get to go stand before God as a martyr and get the reward of the martyr. It's a wonderful place to be in many ways. But the question is, do we believe what God says? And the real test of whether we believe it or not is if we will act upon it. God says to go and teach all nations and disciple them. Do we do that? Do we truly believe that we're supposed to do that? Do we go out and, and disciple people? If we don't, we are basically telling God, well, God, I don't think it's that important. I don't know that I, don't know that I can do this, even though you gave us all that job. God, I'm going to stand for you. In spite of maybe losing my life, I'm going to stand for you. Why? Because if I lose my life, I could go to heaven. I, to me, that's probably the greatest positive thing to be able to say, I have nothing to lose to honor God. The worst that can happen to is me, I have to spend more time on this world. The best of this, I get to go before God and be able to stand before him and say, God, I, I, was, I was following you to the end. And here I am. Verse 26, Therefore he lifted up his hand against them and overthrew them in the wilderness to overthrow their seed also among the nations and scatter them amongst the land. So he goes, over and over, God scattered his people. And we look at this. All through the book of Judges, disobedient, get judged. Repent, be disobedient, get judged. <laughs> Repent. Be disobedient, get judged, <laughs> repent. God's patience with them over and over and over again to allow them to come to him. Moses being told, I'm going to destroy everybody. I'll just start all over, God, with you, Moses. Wandering 40 years in the wilderness, dying slowly over those 40 years. Why? Because they rejected to go into the land. And God said, and what did they say? We're not, we're not going in there. Our children will die when we go in there. And what did God tell them? Fine, you'll wander in the wilderness and then your children will get to go into the promised land. The ones that you were worried about will get to go in, but none of you are going in. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Everybody over 20 years old died during the wandering in the wilderness because of their rejection to step forward with God. God is patient. 40 years is nothing to God. He says, okay, you want to wait 40 years to enter in the promised land? I can wait 40 years to enter the promised land. Oh, you want to wait? You, want to, you haven't been giving your, your uh, land to Sabbath rest? Okay, you owe me, you owe me 90 year, uh, 70 years in captivity. Oh, you, you, you're not paying attention? The Messiah's coming 490 years later? I have no problem. It's a piece of cake. You, you want Adam, you sinned? I'll redeem your people in 6,000 years. <laughs> And start, and start the kingdom all over that you were supposed to have started in the first place. Time is irrelevant to God because he's outside of time. He's eternal. And as we get older, we recognize how short time gets because each year represents such a short portion of our, shorter portion of our life. God is eternal. Centuries go by in a blink of an eye as far as he's concerned because of how long he's been around. A millennia doesn't even register to him. It's, it's come and gone. It's like a day. It's gone. That's why Peter said, day in the eyes of the Lord is like a thousand years. It wasn't saying literally, but he's saying in the concept that God has for it, a day goes by so quick to God, a thousand years goes by as if it was a day. He recognizes that there's time, but not enough, but not enough to really care. 
And so they murmured, they lifted up, they, they overthrew. Verse 28, they joined themselves unto Baal Beor and ate sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions and the plague broke out among them. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment and so the plague was stayed. And that was counted for righteousness unto him for generations forevermore. This is the story of the conclusion of uh, Balaam. Remember that Balaam went to Balak and he said, you, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to get them to get, tell you how to get their God to be upset with them. And that's when he sent in the women to seduce the men into worship and the, and the men in to seduce the women so that they would all start sacrificing to Baal. And it was even worse. They started taking these women. And then Moses came in and said, get rid of these foreign women. And you remember the story that the plague broke out. And this one man brazenly brought in the woman and paraded her before Moses and Aaron into his tent to sleep with her. To Well, not, not sleep, but to have sex with her. And this is when Phineas came up with a javelin and ran the javelin through and pinned them to the ground. And God stopped the plague. Thousands had died. Tens of thousands had died through this plague. Balaam and Balak almost got their way. God, the people of Israel were greatly judged for their disobedience to God. Joining themselves up with the foreign women following after their gods. And Phineas's reward for this was that, he was, that his line was going to be blessed forever, it says. He's going to be the high priest. He's, his line was going to be in Aaron. He's one of the last remaining sons of Aaron. Aaron had a lot of sons die because of their disobedience to God. And Phineas, in his righteous act, said, this is not going to happen. And he drove that, that javelin through the, through the couple in the very act of whatever they were doing and pinned them to the ground. And God said, okay, there's one righteous that's standing in the gap. And he stopped the plague. This is something that God does when people stand up for him. Great mercy and grace follows. In Chronicles, we're told, if my people who are called after my name shall humble themselves and call upon the name of the Lord, their nation shall be saved. The voice of one intercessor is probably the only thing that's keeping our country from being totally destroyed right now is the Christians that are praying for our country, interceding for our country. One can chase 10,000, it says. Our prayers are keeping our country protected. More so than the world understands. If they don't understand it at all. Most Christians don't hardly understand it. The world doesn't understand it at all. How blessed they are because Christians are interceding. And there's going to come a time when God removes the church out and we're, then they're going to see how valuable the Christian presence was for them because it won't be there to pray for them anymore and Satan will have a greater hand to do what he wants. And that's kill, maim, and destroy. And they're not fully understanding it. Verse 32. They angered him also, and that's God, at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses for their sake because they provoked his spirit so that he spoke unadvisedly with his lips. <laughs> So this is the story of, Je of uh, Moses at the second time that he, they took water from the rock. And if you remember the story, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and in, the water was to come out. The first time he struck the rock and the waters came out. And that was a, these are pictures of Jesus. Jesus was struck and living water gushes out of him at the cross. From that point on, we just have to ask him for water and he gives water. And Moses got angry with the people. And Moses had a temper. If you read through there, Moses had a temper and he had a problem with his temper. He came off the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai and the first thing he did was break the Ten Commandments. He yelled at them. He was, you know, he was 
you know, Moses was ready to have the people, if God had asked Moses to, you know, I'm going to kill the people and start all over. There were times when if God had asked him that, Moses was like, all right, I'm all for it, God. I'm so mad at them. Let's do it. God asked him at the right time for him to, to be able to intercede for them. But this time he stands before the people and he starts yelling, must I bring forth water from this rock? And he strikes the rock. And God in his graciousness gave him the water. But he told Moses, you're not going to the promised land. And from that point on in Deuteronomy, whenever you read the story in Deuteronomy, Moses goes, because of you people, I'm not entering into the promised land. Not because of my anger, but because of you people, I'm not going into the promised land. And that's a refrain all through Deuteronomy when he's given his, the second giving of the law, his last sermon to them before they go into the land. He's going, because of you, because of you, because of you. And I've said this before. I believe that's why he did not go into the promised land was, was because God knew that he would never humble himself and repent of his sin at the... At the uh, waters of strife. And that's my, my opinion. It's worth what it is, but it, I just believe that if Moses had been willing to repent, God would have said, okay, you can go in. But God knew that he would never repent. He would always blame the people before, for it. It wasn't that he wasn't supposed to even be mad. It was his actions that he did because he was mad. He was making it look like he had brought water out and, you know, instead of God bringing the water out. And he was supposed to just speak to the rock. He destroyed a picture of Jesus Christ. And by destroying that picture and not being repentant of that destruction of the picture, God said, fine, you're not going in. We need to be very careful in our own walk that we need to be careful what we say, how we say it, and what we do when it comes to lifting Jesus up. Because so often we lift up an angry, bitter God in front of people. And God is loving and caring for people. He died for them so that they could go to heaven. And we oftentimes will lift up this angry God. If you don't get right with God, you're going to have this, that, or the other thing happening to you. And, and we do this kind of thing often. We need to be very careful with this. Not to say that their sin is okay, but we also need to be careful not to be looking and presenting this God that is just angry. How many people have you met that are afraid to do anything for God because, as I say, they've kind of got, a lot of Christians are this way. They have this kind of idea that God's this big bad meanie up there in heaven waiting for them to stick their head up out of the hole so we can pop them like whack-a-mole. You know, oh, you dared to pop your head up, bang, you're up, you boom, you know, the, God's not playing whack-a-mole with us. He's going, come on up here, I love you, I want to give you, I want to bless you. But unfortunately, many Christians are living with this mentality that they just can't do anything because God's just waiting to smash them. And that is the impression that many non-Christians have. That, man, there's somebody up there in this heavenly that's just waiting to, to smack me if I dare to poke my head up and look at him. And it's a sad place that, we, that people are at. We need to be so confident in God and know that his love is so much for us that we want to be with him. We want to go before him. We want to try to do great things for him because if we fail, it's fine. He'll say, fine, you, at least you tried. You didn't listen to me quite completely, but you tried. This is the God we serve, a God of love and mercy, not one with a big hammer in his hand waiting for us to do something wrong so he can pound us. And I know that's probably not what most people in this church believe because I keep teaching us that God loves us and we keep bringing it up, we keep bringing it up. But I can tell you there are many Christians out there that don't have that picture of God. They're just, they have a picture of this angry God who's just waiting for them to mess up so he can pound them over the head a few times. And so they can't hide in their holes and are afraid to do anything because they don't understand the love and the grace of God. Our God is loving. He wants us to be stepping forward with him. But he wants us to do it in him as well because he gives us the strength to be victorious. But we need to keep this in mind. They kept provoking him. They kept, they kept attacking God and making him angry. But how did they do it? They kept forgetting what he had done. Every time they turned around, within a couple of days, or no longer in a month or two, they were going, griping against God. God, we're sick and tired of this manna. We, we want to go back to Egypt. We had onions and melons and leeks and, and fish galore over there. You know, granted, we were slaves and being beat every day, but look at all the food we had, God, and all we have now is this manna. 
manna, the perfect food given to him every morning. You can't know God, though, and turn around and look up. I'm sick of this manna, and I want some. I would never, ever be that stupid or that brave, whichever. I would be careful with that statement because we're like that quite often. God, I'm tired of all these blessings that you gave me. Uh, why don't you give me some new blessings? I have a house. I have, a, I have uh, utilities. I have a vehicle. I have food on my table all the time. God, I want more. Many people get that way. Many people who don't think they'll ever get that way might get that way. We need to be careful at how we look at the Jews. I, think, I agree. I find it very hard. How can you have seen these mighty miracles and then forgot God momentarily, you know, a few moments later, but I've also seen in my own life where I've done it at times, where I've forgotten the blessings of God. Forget not all my benefits is what God tells us to do, and yet oftentimes we will forget his benefits and not see with spiritual eyes, and all we look at is, because the human nature is very much one that says, what have you done for me lately? Okay, you did all these great things, but what have you done for me today? This happens in the sports world a lot. Somebody's a hero because of all the good things they're doing, but let them go into a small slump and they turn against them. Turn against them. They're bitter against that person that they were singing the praises of the week before. One bad season, one bad week, one bad game. And all of a sudden, they are this, the goat of that person. They've gone from being praised greatly to being totally rejected. It is human nature and we all have done it or will do it with God It's in our life where we seek after something more than he's given. It's not enough. I've forgotten about it. It's, it's looking like it's all gone. We're going through a season of Job where everything seems to be taken away and we get grumpy and go, God, why is this all happening to me? And and how are you, you know, you're not doing anything good. You, and maybe even get into the way, well, you've never done anything for me for, you know, for good. Because we're focused on the problems of the moment rather than what has God always done and going, going to I do in the future. Been. I would be very careful of saying never because it's uh, going to be something that God can arrange the circumstances that'll be, that make it very easy to well, end up doing. Because he's going to test it. He's going to challenge it. He's going to make sure that you know that it's him who is your deliverer, him that is your strength. Because if we ever get to that place where somehow I think it's me, that I have enough faith in him, I have enough experience with him, that I will not fail, you will fail. God will just show you that it can't be you that, that holds up. And then, like I say, for me, my biggest experience was if anybody had told me when I was in high school that I would ever have a time where I didn't go to church, I would have laughed at them saying, there is just no way I'll never, never go to church and, and won't be spending time with God. Well, it didn't take much too long before I was with my face down, you know, in the gutter, you know, not, not literally in many ways, but, you know, I wasn't going to church. I would always want to keep us aware the moment we think that everything is going well and, I, and somehow I'm beyond falling down, be very careful because that's exactly when you'll end up flat on your face and God saying, you weren't paying attention to me. It's a situation when we're going through things that other people are involved in, it's probably both sides of it. How am I going to react and how are they going to react between them and God? But all of this, all of our trials are designed to see, are we going to be sanctified? Are we going to stand with God and honor God and be cleansed by what we're going through? How do we know what we're doing is the right thing for the other person? You pray, you honor God, you follow God's word. A lot of times, and as, as I've said, the biggest thing about helping others is, is what you're going to do going to actually make them grow or are you enabling them to stay in the wrong decisions? That's a hard decision. Believe me, I understand how hard that decision is, having been in the benevolence side of things where you have to decide if we give this person the money to pay their bills, are we helping them or are we enabling them to do bad decisions? Most of the time, it's enabling. 
unless there's some solid reasons. Well, I was out of work for, for two weeks because I fell down and pulled the muscles in my back and I, and I lost two weeks worth of pay. That's helping. If they're not making enough money, it can be enabling unless they're willing to help, you know, that they need the help and, you're, and you really will show you that they need that help. Most people aren't willing to open up enough to let you know that, that's much, that you're helping them. But especially as parents, so often we will enable our kids to keep doing bad decisions because, well, we love them. We don't want to see them hurt. We don't want to see them in the gutter struggling. And yet that gutter struggling may be just where they need to be, freezing to death maybe because it'll break their pride and, and make them draw them to God. It's hard. It's harsh. But that's what God does to us. If we want to go the wrong direction, he'll let us wallow around in the gutter, totally messing up our life sometimes, because he knows that in the long run, heaven is at stake. And if heaven is at stake, I'd rather see them, see my child wallowing around in the gutter in, in extreme distress and come to God than for me to keep do things that will keep them from coming to God because I'm, I don't want to see them in pain. So my choice is to see them in earthly pain or to see them in pain for eternity. I would rather see the pain today for a short time than eternal pain and suffering. And again, I understand how hard that statement is to say because none of us want to see our children in pain. But if we really keep an understanding of what happens in eternity if I don't let them have the pain today to come to God? What will happen in eternity? And we see it in the scriptures so many times. Joseph, imagine what Joseph could have said. Brothers sold him into slavery. He's, in sla he's a slave for 13 years, a slave or a prisoner for 13 years. At any one of those times, he could have said, the heck with this, God. You haven't, you haven't been blessing me. These dreams you gave me as a, as a teenager were false. You lied to me. You know, here I am in Egypt, a, a slave and a prisoner. Every time I do the right thing, I end up worse. You know, can, have you thought about that? And he says, I'm going to keep following God. I'm going to keep following God. I'm going to be honorable to God. And God promotes him. Then he gets to meet his brothers who sold him into slavery. <laughs> you know, the human nature would have said, all right, let me get back at these guys. They're never going back to see dad again. I'll go send messengers to dad to come down here. But these guys, dad's not going to know what's Dad will never know what's happened to them. But that was not the heart he had for them. God, you sent me down here ahead of them so that I could preserve my family. I'm going to love them and I'm going to show them that you were behind this. He had every reason to be really sad about everything that happened. Jacob was heartbroken. He'd lost his son as far as he was concerned, and now he's got his son back in the greatest blessing that he had ever, ever achieved. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen, but our goal is to release God to do whatever it takes in our, in our family's lives, our, our people's lives, to get them to turn around. And I speak of as a pastor sometimes when you watch people make bad decisions and you go, you can't make the decisions for them. And you're going, okay, God, whatever it takes to bring them to you. I'll be there to help pick up the pieces that you want me to help pick up when they've made the bad decisions and gone the wrong ways. But God, whatever it takes. And then you watch people go through hard, hard times. And you go, man, if they'd only just listened, if they'd only obeyed, they wouldn't have to be there. But God, I want to be here. I want to be here when it's time to pick up the pieces. And you make yourself available to them as often as you can and ready to pick up the pieces. And this is where we're at. But God says he loves us so much that he will do whatever it takes to draw us to him. If that means the death of somebody precious to us to bring them to him, he'll do that. If it means bringing great pain and suffering into somebody's life to, bring, to draw them to him, he'll do that. If it means bringing them all the way down from the, the pinnacle, how many people have been CEOs of companies and gotten into alcohol and drugs, ended up in Skid Row before they finally realized that it's God that they needed? 
How many celebrities have done the same thing? They've just gotten so depressed, they bring themselves to the edge of death before they find out that what they really need is God. God will do whatever it takes to bring people to him. We need to stay out of the way oftentimes and say, God, I'm willing to let you do it. I, I don't want to see my child get hurt. I don't want to see this person I care about get hurt. But God, if that's what it takes for you to bring them to you, God, do what you need to do. Hard prayer. Hard understanding. What did God have to do to redeem us? He sent Jesus Christ to become sin, having to turn his back on his own son. We don't really think about this, but God the Father and the Holy Spirit took great pain in the redemption of us as well. They were separated from themselves for the first time in all of eternity for a period of time because Jesus became sin. It wasn't just Jesus who, be, who took the penalty. The Father and the Son took heavy pain so that we could be bought back. To be, they have to reject Jesus Christ and turn their back on part of who they had been for all of eternity. They took great pain. Jesus took the physical pain. He took the spiritual pain. But the Father and the Spirit also had pain to be, have to reject part of themselves. But he was willing to pay the price so that we could be redeemed and brought back into fellowship. If God is willing to pay the price, can't we be willing to pay the same price that he had to pay to see somebody redeemed and brought back, even if it's going to cause us great pain to see it happen? We need to keep that in mind. We're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and that you care for us, that you died for us, that we could be able to be brought back to you. And Lord, that you love us with such great love that you were willing to do all of this and bring us to you. Lord, help us to go out and show that love to others and to lift you up in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.